Amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 2. We've been going through the Gospel of John. We saw chapter 1, verses 1 through, I think I went 18 in our introduction in first week. Last week we covered <clears throat> chapter 2. John's Gospel, very different from the other Gospels. Focusing on his ministry in Galilee. And so we'll pick up right where we left off. His apostles have been called. And we see uh, two different accounts here. Today in John chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine. And it's the, cl the first cleansing of the temple. The second cleansing of the temple, would, as I said earlier, would be on Monday of his last week on earth. Um, and that's included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel. The first one's not included in those Gospels, but John includes it in his. And so at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry, it's kind of sandwiched in between Jesus cleansing the temple and just this seriousness of the house of God and everything that that entails. So John's Gospel, chapter 2. Father, we thank you for your word and we ask your blessing upon this time. Speak to us, Lord, as we thank you so much that we can uh, just have this time of year. But as well, Lord, we can have um, just this time today to be able to just glean from the pages of Scripture. So bless this time as we offer it up to you in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. <clears throat> John chapter 2 verse 1 says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So Jesus, his mother, his disciples are invited to a wedding in Cana of Galilee. This puts, you know, Jesus's, if you will, stamp of approval, approval on a wedding ceremony. Weddings are good things or, you know, God's idea. He's the one that came up with the idea of putting two together, creating this incredible thing of one flesh and just the blessing that all that can entail. God's the one that gives us instructions for marriage. And every time I do premarital counseling, I tell the couple that we obey God's word to our benefit and we disobey it to our detriment. There's a lot of people's opinions about how, how we should live in marriage and just all kinds of stuff. I think God, who's the one that thought up of marriage, is the one that has the best counsel for us. And so here's Jesus at a wedding. Now, Jesus' whole family is going to be there. We're going to see that. Um, as we close it out in verse uh, 12, it says, After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And so they're all there. They're all gathered there. Jesus is at a wedding. And it just seems like a, like a neat little off time, if you will. And so um, a time of, it's, it's not, you know, focus ministry. It's not purposeful living. It's just, hey, life. As life takes on certain things, we... We go to things that we want to. We're invited to places. And so just a neat opportunity for Jesus to be here with his mom. Uh, no mention of Joseph. It is believed that at this time, Joseph, Jesus's stepfather, has passed away. This will be the last recorded words in the Bible of Mary uh, that we're going to see. She'll be last mentioned in Acts chapter 1. But this will be the last time that her words are recorded within the scriptures. We'll see her. Of course, at the, you know, at the cross, she's there. Uh, 
John will be communicated for, uh, to, from Jesus, from the cross, of Jesus, from the cross. Verse 3, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. <clears throat> now, we don't understand, or maybe we can understand, but in this culture, um, there's a, the wedding was a, a seven-day event, and this was an opportunity for the people getting married and putting it together to just be a blessing to the people that were coming to their wedding. It was more than just, you know, these two becoming one. It was, it was a celebration. It was a joyous event. It was a party atmosphere, and it was, it was all good. Jesus, again, being here at the wedding. Um, it, you know, everything I've read, it seems that Mary had something to do with this because she's concerned. Um, you know, it doesn't tell us if this, uh, these are relatives, but it seems that possibly they, they are. But, yeah, Mary's concerned that they ran out of wine. She knows what this means for them. And it means that, you know, they could be laughed at. They could be a laughing stock. They, it, it, would, it would bode not very well for them to run out of wine. It's like they didn't plan right. And, you know, this can, this can live with them, if you will, for the rest of their lives. And so it seems like a very small and significant thing, but God cares about the small things of our life. And I think that is something that is just so awesome about God, the things that might affect us in the future, the things that might, you know, be a, a point of ridicule, if you will, for us. God cares about those little things. And it just shows here what Jesus is willing to to do to make sure that that doesn't happen. So Mary, you know, tells um, Jesus, uh, Jesus, they have no wine. Jesus, verse four says, Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. In the English, that seems rude. It seems um, that he shouldn't talk to his mom like that. But there's nothing rude about what he's saying. He's clearly communicating a truth. His hour has not come. It's not time for him to reveal himself. Think about the, think about how Mary feels. Mary has gone through this immaculate conception, this virgin birth. Jesus is now 30 years old, starting out in his ministry. She's been ridiculed. She's been, you know, laughed at. Jesus later is going to be, you know, his, his lineage is going to come into question. His birth is going to come into question. They're going to call him a fatherless child. We didn't come into the world like you, without a dad, you know, so he's, all of that's going to come into play, so Mary here, this is her son, she knows who Jesus is, she got that angel that came to her, remember, 30 years ago, and the one that's going to cut, and, and you have Simeon uh, uh, prophesying, and all this stuff, and Mary, it, it says Mary kept it in her heart, and then she, in Luke chapter 2, she, she proclaims the Magnificent, right, the, that, that, that beautiful poem of Man, this is just incredible that God would choose me to bring the Savior of the world into the world. And she's kept this. And so at some point she knows Jesus the Messiah, he's going to reveal himself. At one point I'm going to be, and so maybe, I don't know, maybe she's thinking, this is it. He ran out of wine. Do the miracle. Show him who you are. What Jesus is saying is, I'm on my father's schedule, not my mother's schedule. As much as I love you, mom, as much as I respect and honor you, I'm on my dad's plan, my heavenly father. And so Jesus is going to help out. He is going to assist. He is going to do something about this, but not in the way that maybe she desires. Okay. And so he's going to do something. Verse five. 
His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. I love that as the last recorded words of Mary. You look at how Mary is elevated in the Catholic Church, and she's oftentimes elevated above Jesus as a co-redemptress, as one who also took on the sins of the world. Nothing could be further from the truth. Mary is to be exalted among women. Why? She brought the Savior of the world into the world. She nurtured him. She cared for him. She made sure that he lived uh, 30 so that he can go and do his thing and, and you know, do his ministry and ultimately die on the cross for the sins of the world. And so we should honor Mary. We should look at her as an example, an incredible godly woman, a teenager at the time that she gave birth, a godly woman that God was able to use in trusting the Savior of the world into her care. But co-redemptress, no. These are the last words. Whatever he says to you, do it. Good words to follow from Mary. Whatever Jesus tells us to do, that we should do, right? We're not praying to Mary. We're not praying through Mary to the Father. Well, I like praying to a woman because, you know, I feel she's softer and I'm able to, Mary ain't listening to you. Mary can't hear you. Praying? You pray. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And so be careful with all that. Again, you know, we can, we can slam it. We can kind of come against it hard. But at the same time, just put it in its biblical context. Make sure that we have a biblical understanding that these are good words from Mary. Last recorded words that she will speak in the scriptures. Verse 6, now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons. Two times six, 120. Three times 680. That's a lot of gallons of water, right? Within these, or at least that these gallons, these, these pots would hold. Um, so they would hold that much. Jesus said to them, so he's talking to the servants, fill the water pots with water, and they filled them to the brim. Now, Jesus is going to give instructions to these people. They're going to listen to Mary. Whatever he says to you, do it. But they can do it however they want to do it. So the servants are there. Jesus says, take those six water pots and put some water in them. And it says here, not only do they put water in them, but they fill them to the brim. Now, did they know that we were going to be reading John chapter 2 here in 2019, studying the scriptures? They were faithful, and they filled it to the brim. They filled it to the top. They filled it until it couldn't be filled anymore. Jesus gave them a simple instruction. And what did they do with it? They obeyed it. They filled it to the brim. And the Bible is telling us. The Bible could have said, yeah, they put water in it. They filled it. No, no, no. The Bible is telling us they filled it to the brim. When God gives you an instruction, when God whispers in your ear, when God speaks to you, when God tells you something, do you, nah, I'll get around to that. Yeah, yeah maybe I'll, I'll, I'll do that if it's convenient for me. I'll do that the way I want to do it in the style that I want to do it. God will bless you with more and more as he can entrust you with the little. But he can entrust you with big things if he can't entrust you with little things. As you show yourself faithful in the little, God blesses you with more. It's just what he does. Because he doesn't want to give you or me the impression that he looks fondly upon slothfulness or laziness or, or cavalier attitudes towards the things. Because you never know what's going to lead to something bigger. You never know when you're going to be included in the Bible uh, with a miracle that Jesus performs and you get to take part of it. What did they do? They did what they could. Are they going to turn the water into the wine? Are they going to turn the molecular structure of the water? No, 
They're just going to obey Jesus. And what did he ask them to do? Something that they could do. Fill it. Fill the water pots. You got six of them right there. Right? And what do they do? Show faithfulness with that little thing. When the master, uh, I'm sorry, verse 8, and he said to them, draw some out. So here's his second little command. Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And that's exactly how God leads us. He shows that we're faithful with the little. Then he gives us more to do. And before you know it, we experience a miracle. And they took it. When the master of the feast, verse 9, had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, the, uh, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So, you know, when, when I guess the regular form of, of doing things back then was, you know, get the good stuff out first. When everyone gets pickled and they're a little, you know, they're a little, uh, you know, not, not, not so much uh, all 100% there. Then we'll bring out the inferior and they'll just keep drinking anyways because, you know, they'll be okay, right? Not Jesus. He always saves the best for last. And so that's, that's just beautiful, you know, br bringing the best out and, and holding it, if you will, for the last. Now, we have a lot of things going on here, and uh, there's, there's just some, some thoughts. It's kind of, for some people, they wonder, you know, did Jesus turn the water into wine, or did he turn it into maybe some grape juice that, that didn't have fermentation and alcohol in it? Um, from everything that we can tell, the, 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 the text for sure, uh, the Greek word, um, yeah, this was wine. It wasn't, it wasn't not wine. Why do you think somebody would want to make this grape juice and unfermented? Why, why do you think, uh, if there's anybody within Christianity, why do you think they would want to do that? What would be their motive, motivation? Ron? So Ephesians 6.18 says, do not be drunk with wine, right? And so there may be, uh, that, whoa, wait, wait, if, if Jesus is turning this into alcohol and then they're going to drink alcohol, Jesus is promoting drunkenness. The Bible clearly speaks that we shouldn't get drunk. Is that what Jesus is doing? No. We could say the same argument is, well, there's people that are gluttons. Jesus wouldn't turn biscuits and fish sticks into, you know, feed the multitude of 5,000 with just a little bit, right? No, no, no. So it, would it be Jesus's fault if somebody drank the wine and got drunk? No. Okay. What is wine a symbol of in the Bible? Joy. Blood. And the communion? Yeah, blood. Type of joy. Okay. In this context, we're looking at a, a joyful event. It's a wedding. Is it a drudgery or is it a celebration? Is it uptime or downtime? Are we just kicking cans or are we like, hey... Hey, turn it up. Woo! Party atmosphere, right? And we think that God is like this killjoy that he's just out to, you know, just like we can't have fun. I'm a Christian. Is he serious? It's always serious. You know, I got I to gotta be honest. It's hard to be a pastor because people are going through uh, difficult times. Their, their sin affects them. And sometimes there's just news that is bad news in their life. And, you know, they, you're happy and they're like, no, I don't care about me because I'm struggling. And, 
It's like, so sometimes you just got to like, you got to drop the joy down. You got to, I'm just naturally, man, I'm just like a bubbly kind of simple guy. I like to be happy. I think me and Joe are cut out of the same cloth. We're just happy people, right? So it is difficult at times, but, but God wants joy. So let's not miss that point. The verse um, 11 gives us the point of the miracle. That, that's the whole purpose. The beginning of signs Jesus did. So did Jesus do all these miracles in his boyhood, um, healing butterflies and birds that had died for his friends when he was you know, eight years old, but it's not recorded in the Bible. But we hear these stories of all these things that Jesus did. It, isn't the Bible telling us this is the first sign he did? The first miracle right here? How about we just let the Bible let us tell us you know, what Jesus did? All these secret writings and these secret books of what Jesus did as a child. This is the beginning of signs right here. He starts his ministry. He's, he's baptized. He's led in the wilderness to be tempted. He picks his disciples and boom, here's his first ministry. His first miracle, I'm sorry. Right here, the beginning of signs. Notice, and again, the purpose of the miracle of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. He's manifesting his glory. This is who I am. This is who I am. And so his disciples had already believed, but this is a confirmation for them. We're following the right guy. All right, whoa, this guy, this guy, oh, okay, I can see. He's, he's, he's in touch with the Father. Man, he, he did something there in that miracle. I think um, alcohol is an interesting topic in the scriptures. It's a secondary topic, but it's gigantic in the culture because of the state of our culture and the de destruction and the devastation of alcohol. But for the Christian, alcohol is a prickly pear and you got to be careful how you hold it. You got to be careful how you communicate the truth of what the Bible says as opposed to maybe what your church says or what your church culture says or what, you know, American Christianity says. Right? So you got to be careful. Um, the Bible says, do not get drunk. Do not be drunk. And there's plenty of prohibitions against alcohol and what it can do. The Bible is full of them. I wrote some of them down. Ephesians 5.18, Proverbs 23, 29 through 35. Don't linger at wine. Don't, don't let it, you know, don't look at the wine in the glass and let it just glisten and before you know it, you're going to come to poverty. Your life is going to be ruined. Your life is going to be in a shambles. 1 Corinthians 6, 12, 2 Peter 2, 19. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 says, don't, don't let anything bring you into this bondage. You, you have the freedom to be able to do whatever it is you desire to do, but be careful. Don't let anything bring you under its power, right? So let's have a sober mindset about alcohol. Um, scriptures that discuss alcohol in positive terms. Ecclesiastes 9, 7 says, drink your wine with a merry heart. Psalm 104, 14 and 15, wine that makes glad the heart of a man. Amos 9, 14 discusses drinking wine from your own vineyard as a sign of God's blessing. Isaiah 51 encourages, yes, come by wine and milk. And so the Bible nowhere prohibits the drinking of alcohol. It says, be careful not to get drunk. Here's a scripture that, that I don't know how, what to do with. I have one scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that tells me as a pastor that I'm not to be given to wine. 
And then I have a later section in 2 Timothy where Paul encourages term, uh, Timothy, hey, you got a stomachache. Take a little wine for that. Timothy was a pastor. Okay. So, you know, again, be, be careful. You squeeze it too tight and you squeeze the life of it, out of it. You hold it too loose and it's going to, you know, fall out of your hands. So just have your convictions. And remember, a conviction is a personal thing that God gives to you because he knows you. But be careful to place your convictions upon the body of Christ. As a pastor, I'm not even supposed to do that. My convictions are personal. I don't consume alcohol. I was an alcoholic. God delivered me from alcohol. I don't need it. I'm good. If anybody in my family or I go to an event and somebody's drinking, I don't judge them. I don't have any judgment on them. I'm like, wow, that's cool. Man, you going at it? I'll drink more water. Good looking out. I'm good. And I truly don't like, oh my gosh, it's so tempting. And no. I, the way I look at it, I was in a gutter. God pulled me out of the gutter. Why would I go swim back in that gutter? That's my personal conviction. That's my personal testimony. That's for me. But as far as telling people or looking down upon people, my gosh. Yeah, you know, the other day I went to my friend's house. He's a Christian. Yeah, and they had Coronas in their refrigerator. You believe that? Oh, my gosh. And then you go spread it around the whole church like they're in sin. Maybe they want to marinate their beef with some good Corona and then sip a little while they're barbecuing. You know, I don't. So be careful. Be careful with that. Any questions on alcohol? Any uh, thoughts that you guys want to throw? I understand all the arguments. Go ahead. As a pastor, I've seen some people on social media kind of a while ago. As a pastor, you shouldn't be posting about it, correct? I mean, I don't think it was necessarily in a bad light, but I think if you are leading sheep, so to speak, they should be not, I mean, of course they shouldn't be looking at you, they should be going back to the Word of God, yeah. but they shouldn't be proponing for something, because what if someone saw that who they felt were delivered by that through their teaching or whatever, and mm -hmm. they saw that, that would be kind of like a bad light. Mm -hmm. And it could. So the argument for that is we need to be careful what we put out there. We're not hiding or we're not pretending. Uh, but at the same time, putting something out and giving our stamp of approval could stumble somebody. And all of the scriptures in the Romans and the Corinthians that talk about be careful with your freedoms not to stumble another brother. In fact, the brother with scruples is the weaker brother. Okay, so be careful with all of that. Yeah, definitely. You can stumble somebody. And that's probably one of the best arguments for, in the church at least, for being careful, you know, with your freedoms. So I agree with that. Anybody else? All right. Moving on to the second section. So Jesus performs a miracle. And I mean, ultimately, he wants joy in your life. Are you joyful? Are you joyful? Well, no, you don't understand because, you know, the circumstances. Rise above your circumstances. God wants you to be joyful. Doesn't mean that you're in denial. It doesn't mean that you're, um, you're not sensitive to others that are hurting or, or things like that. But joy, do you possess it? Is it something that you walk in? Or is there another set of, if you will, emotions that you are more frequenting? Where is your joy? God would have you to be joyful. God wants you to be joyful. Joyful is a good emotion. Would anybody not want to experience some joy in their life? I think we need a little more joy. Okay, well, Jesus brings joy. Verse 13, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Oh, I didn't read 12. 
After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, his brothers, his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. And so think that's why we think, you know, family event, something was going on there. Verse 13, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheeps and doves and the money changers doing business. Now the money changers are going to be there because they're going to say that the inscription on most of the coins was over to a deity, a false god, Caesar or whoever was elevated in that culture. And uh, it's kind of pagan. We're going to bring that into the temple, but their temple stuff had stuff too. So, you know, we're going to change it into shekels. The exchange rate was exorbitant. Exorbitant? It was a lot. It was, they were ripping them off. They were stealing from them. What was the purpose of the temple? To come and to meet with God, right? To be able to sacrifice to God, to come and, and, and have my sins taken care of and all of this stuff. And so they're doing business in the temple. It would be in the court of the Gentiles. And if you study what was taking place first century AD when Jesus comes on the scene, uh, Jews didn't do their job. They were supposed to be the light of the world. They were supposed to bring people into the fold through Judaism, through pointing to the Messiah. And they just didn't. They did a horrible job at what they were supposed to do. They wholly huddled, oftentimes like the church does, and it was this exclusive click club where they were like, ah, you guys are going to hell. In fact, you guys are, you guys are going to be the, 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 the fuel for hell. That's why God created the Gentiles. And so they just had this mindset that was just, it was wrong. So in this money changers in the, in the court of the Gentiles, before you would go to the next section, before the Holy of Holies and where the sacrifice would take place and all of that stuff, um, it was just an opportunity for them to make money. Verse 15, when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and the oxen and poured all, out the changers of money and overturned the tables and he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So right on the heels of joy, we have another emotion. Okay, Jesus is angry, but is controlled anger. Is angry, anger sin? No, no, no. Does, can anger lead to sin? Oftentimes, right? And so Jesus is righteously anger here. There's a righteous indignation taking place. So right after this joy, we have this word zeal. Zeal. Give me the definition of zeal. Great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or objective. Synonyms for zeal. It's just something just that just it bubbles. Just, just something that's deep, but it's just an excitement about something that's good. Something that's just right, righteous. Just this passion, right? This, this love that exudes. So what does Jesus love? Bless you. He loves his father. He loves what his father stands for. He loves what his father has called him to. He's zealous for his father and his father's holiness. And he sees something going on where people should be brought to God in the temple, but they're being kept away from God. And it causes this anger that the disciples remember the scripture. He's going to have zeal. For his temple. He's going to be passionate about the things of his father. So moving on, verse 18. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, destroy this temple 
and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. How do we do this today? How do we keep people from Jesus? What are your thoughts? So we don't, we don't share. We don't open our mouth. Our actions. In what way? And our actions might not be the, the way that... Uh, so our actions don't match what the Bible like teaches that. and what we believe. Okay. Hypocrisy. So a bad witness, hypocrisy. Yeah. Okay, like Ananias and Sapphira. How else? Hypocrite. Yep, that's what Joe was mentioning. Judgment. Judgment, being judgmental. Okay, that's one of the probably biggest today. Right? What are Christians known as? Ah, they know for what we're against. How are we not known for what we're for? Are we for known for zeal and joy? Because this chapter is talking about zeal and joy. Are we passionate about the things of God? Do we care about the things of God? And maybe sometimes that leads us and bleeds into a judgmental perspective. Be careful with a judgmental perspective. Because I think that's a big thing in Christianity today. Where... We give people the impression, the very opposite of this chapter. Clean your life up. Get your act together. How embarrassing. Stop doing that. God's mad at you. God's angry with you. You're, you're, you're disobeying God. And then God will come into your life or, or do something for you. And yet Jesus first transformed the water into the wine. And then he cleaned, cleansed the temple. And that's exactly what he does in our life. He first transforms us from the inside out. He takes a heart of stone and turns it into a heart of flesh that beats after his own heart. He makes a new creation out of us. And then he cleans us. And we're cleansed by his righteousness, but sanctification, present day sanctification, present day cleaning, present day I'm not what I used to be, but I'm not what I'm going to be. Then he does that. But we in the church have given family members, friends, people who we talk to, the impression that God's not happy with them because of their sin. God's not happy with them because of their lifestyle. And get that act together. And then maybe, you know, God will look fondly upon you and he'll bless you the way he's blessed me and all of that stuff. That's not the gospel. That's your version of the gospel. The gospel is Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. And we can come to him as we are, the uttermost, the guttermost, right? He saves to the uttermost, the book of Hebrews says. And so I pray that we're careful to understand that how God works, God first transforms us. He first does a work inside of us, right? He changes our hearts. He changes the way we think. He changes like, man, like you can't even do it when you don't know God. And we place these expectations on people that, number one, we're not even keeping. And, and, and the whole book of Galatians is written in that vein, written for that, who's bewitched you? Where did you get this gospel? You know, having begun in the spirit, are you now going to be perfected in the flesh? Really? Nah, God's doing something supernatural from the inside out. We're just participating, cooperating. Hopefully we're not resisting 
that work that God wants to do. And in that, the good news of the gospel is come as you are. It's just difficult when we talk to the same people over and over. It's like, at some point, look at your life. It's a shambles. Get it together, man. You know, we want to talk to people like that. But just continue to share the good news, the wonderful news that God accepts you just the way you are. God receives you just the way you are. He won't leave you like that. Everybody who came in contact with Jesus was transformed for sure, but in God's time, right? So I think that's a big way. Jesus first transforms, then he cleanses. Last two verses, three verses. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover over the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. That's encouraging and scary. God knows what's in you, and he called you, and he loves you, and he has a plan for you, and he's not going to quit on you. That's pretty like, Lord, are you sure? Because I'm pretty jacked up sometimes, right? But at the same time, wow, Lord, you picked me, and you're doing a work, and you're not going to leave me. You're not going to leave me in this state. You're going to continue to grow me. You're going to continue to minister to me. You're going to continue to just show me wonderful things about you. And that's awesome. I think there's a neat verse because obviously as you go through the Gospels, you go through the Gospel of John, we're going to see Jesus' worst enemies are the religious leaders, right? And with that, he knew it was in their heart. And he knew their desires. And he knew that they were more concerned about the temporal than the eternal. They should have known that the Messiah was here. God will reveal himself to those who have a desire to be revealed to, and God will not reveal himself to those who do not want him to be revealed to. When in Matthew chapter 13, Matthew writes, he shares with us the parable of the sower, the first parable. In the midst of that, the disciples ask the question, why do you speak in parables? And Jesus explains why he speaks in parables. Because seeing, they will not see. Hearing, they will not hear. The hearts of this people have grown dull of hearing. They do not want to know. They don't want to. So I speak in parables to hide truth because they don't want to receive truth. But to those of you who hear, blessed are your ears, I speak in parables so that you can understand better. Isn't that a trip? Like... The parable that is revealing to those who want to hear makes it simple. Oh, I get it. I see the picture, right? Farmer casting seeds, falling on the wayside, stony ground, good soil, producing a crop, right? Well, I see it. It's clear as day. But for people who don't want to hear, that's stupid. What is this? Just farmer and soils. And I, why is he talking? Why didn't you just shoot me straight? Same sun that hardens the wax melts clay. Or hardens the clay, melts the wax. Same sun. To one, it hardens. To the other, it softens. Is our heart soft and pliable and, and yielding and, and allowing God to, to penetrate? Or is it rigid, stone heart? I want to hear. I don't want to be confused with the facts. La, 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 la. Right? So may we be careful how we hear. Seven times in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, seven times Jesus Speaking to seven churches says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Seven times. He who has an ear to hear. 
pray that we have an ear to hear, that we desire to hear, that we want to grow in the grace and knowledge of God's word. Okay? So kind of scary for that group that Jesus knew what was in people's hearts. And I just see Jesus, you know, studying the Passion Week, the last week, and just before Pilate, before Caiaphas, and before these, you know, mock trials, these fake, phony, set-up liars, right? They're just lying witnesses. And Jesus just silent. Wow, under full control. Nobody takes my life. I lay it down, he would say. Jesus, uh, don't you know who I am? I have authority to have you set free or crucified. You'd have no authority that wasn't given to you by my father. Finally, Caiaphas, do you, do, what, do you, what do you say? What do you say? Listen to what they're saying. They're saying that you were going to destroy the temple. What do you say about all these witnesses? Give us a sign. He says nothing. What does he tell Caiaphas? Um, I forgot what he tells Caiaphas. He does tell him something, though. Does he call him whitewashed? Or is that Paul in Acts? Okay, then that must have been Paul and Felix or one of them guys. I don't know. Anyways, just incredible that Jesus just total in, in control, and these people think they're in control.